right, this is, this is very important for you to hear. Very, very important. Next week is the worst Sunday of the year. Your clocks go forward and you will lose an hour. Okay? You are losing... Don't forget or you're going to show up at the wrong time. I don't, I don't ever know right how it works, but all I know is it was an hour of sleep, so I'm mad. There'll be no jokes in next week's sermon. Just all irritation. Okay? Michelle's not here next week. Sean's leading music next week. And so I said, I go, Sean, we are practicing early. We are not coming in early to practice. We are, he's like, okay. <laughs> we'll see how that works. Set your clocks forward. Next Saturday night, be mad about it the entire time. Be the all... <clears throat> You know, the only good thing about it is that you only have to hit the button once to go forward an hour. Like, when you got to fall back, you got to be like... This way you go, Dunk, and you're there, so whatever. They're just thinking about you. Right. Uh, there's, a, there's a baptism class if you're interested in being baptized after every service this morning. They'll give you directions, just kind of head out and head upstairs. Uh, but they'll give you directions there if you were thinking about being baptized or want to get baptized. We kind of talked about it the last few weeks a lot. So if, that, if that's you, let us know. We'll get you all the information you need. It's, if you can't make it, there will be another one, so, so don't freak out too much. You can also sign up if you can't make it in the back and do that as well. So if you are new or newer to Element, uh, welcome. There are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes and all the communion tables throughout the room. They look like this. And as we said, things are a little bit different because on the inside, you're only getting half a sheet of sermon notes. And the other side is all about our identity as a chosen family. So we understand that side by side. Again, as Christy said, we're not trying to divide our focus too much. But as we come towards the end of this year, we want to unify element together around some certain things. And so for the next three weeks, you'll get uh, some of this in there with it. So if you are in a gospel community, I want you to kind of cover both. Because the questions on this side are short. But this will go a little bit deeper into what we're talking about and ask some more questions. If you do have a smartphone, you can download an app. It's called Uversion. Click on Live and Uversion. When you open it up, you'll actually see two different Uversions for us today. One will be about that family thing, and the other one will be for the sermon notes. So you can open one or the other. If you open the wrong one, you'll be like, I don't know what he's talking about. Open the other one. You'll be there, and you'll be just... Yeah. Okay. So there's that. Uh, if you do have a U version, you will get uh, the summer notes, the announcements, questions, all that goes along with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me? Read to God's word. We'll get started. This is James chapter five, verses fourteen and fifteen, and it says this: Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us what it means to be a people uh, who live in the midst of your healing, that our hearts and our souls and our lives are all placed in your hands, and you are the great physician who heals all of us. And we would lift you up, and you would gain great glory by how your children love and trust and serve you. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so if you are newer, we are taking two-thirds of this year to head through the book of Acts. Well, the first half of the book of Acts. As I keep saying, we're doing many things and attempting this. These are my top three. To see the beginnings of the early church in Jesus called Mission. Uh, secondly, that a lot of you are going to be people in transition. You will not live the rest of your life in Santa Maria 
or you may not go to element the rest of your life because I may do something that irritates you and you may be like, I'm out of here. Okay, well, whatever church you look for, we want you to know some characteristics to look for in those places you go. And thirdly, that you would understand that as we live on mission with and for Jesus, we're not always going to understand everything that he is doing in our lives, but we can always trust him. So open your Bibles to Acts chapter 3. Uh, Acts chapter 3, they are moving forward. You're going to get to a place where a healing takes place. And I just want to talk about this at the outset. We live in a cultural mindset that's called westernized. Westernized comes out of this mindset that's a product of what's called the enlightenment. The enlightenment is a very arrogant term because it means that we have more light than other people. We are more enlightened than those People. They're stupid country bumpkins, you know, can't find the way to the grocery store, but we have cars because we, we are so much more enlightened than them. Now, uh, there are some really good things that come out of the enlighten- enlightenment, uh, like the scientific revolution. Uh, what you'll see is sometimes people today will say, oh, Christians, they hate science. Uh, the scientific revolution came about because Christians believe that the rational world is created by a rational God and can actually be understood. Christians drove the scientific revolution. You have people like Sir Isaac Newton. Sir Francis Bacon, believers who pushed that forward. But in a secular sense, rationality comes along and it says, well, rationality above God is just going to fix our problems. We just got to figure it out. So in a Christian sense or a secular sense, both, they said, if there's something you don't know, communicate it. If there's something you don't know, go find out and search for it and figure out what that is. Now, again, there's many wonderful things that come out of the Enlightenment. Uh, You have science, industrial revolution, modern medicine, democracy, even in Christianity, apologetics, that Christianity is a reasonable faith that can be reasoned for. It all comes out of that. But the Enlightenment also undermined certain things because reason got laced to a level that was so high it began to choke out some other stuff. Like reason will dismiss the possibility of the supernatural or things that are beyond reason. Uh, This goes personally and culturally for us. And so today our rational minds in the West, we want to rebel against the idea that God can actually come in and he can heal people. This is kind of like if you grew up your entire life in the middle of the desert and someone came and tried to explain Hawaii to you. You would think that is just a, a fever dream and they have no idea what they're talking about. It's not really a real place. We have a natural barrier today to trusting these things called healings. We question whether they could be real. And when we are so certain that something can't happen, it's going to start to jade us to real movements of God within our midst. And so many people believe the supernatural kind of sits between two things. It sits between this thing called false hope, you know, that, oh, God's not really there, God can't really perform miracles, but some, you know, crazy backwater people not enlightened as us think that he can. And it also then sits between certain despair for those people because they think their five senses is all that there is and there's nothing beyond that. False hope, certain despair, these are not conducive to growing you as a believer in your faith in Jesus. But there is another way. A common commentator calls it persistent trusting. Persistent trusting realizes that God is sovereign, God is in control, but faith is not a vending machine. You do not go to God, put your faith coin in, and get your healing candy bar out. That's not how it works. It's more like a farmer going out and a farmer is sowing seed. There's no guarantee that every seed that you sow is going to sprout up and become a plant. You have persistent cultivating in this, and eventually some of them will grow. If you just take all the seeds of your faith and keep them shoved in your pocket, you're never going to plant, and nothing is ever going to grow. It is persistent trust and openness that God can do what he wants to do. So we're going to walk through this passage in Acts 3. We're going to see uh, how God's compassion is bigger than us, what it calls us to. We're probably going to go in some directions you don't really see coming, but we're going to bring it all together in our compassion for one another. It'll be amazing if I do say so myself. All right, so Acts chapter 3, starting in verse 1. 
Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. So this shows, first off, that Peter and John are still following their heritage, their customs. They're going up to pray. It's about 3 p.m. in the afternoon. You would be at work, by the way. And a man lame from birth was being carried. That's his life condition from birth, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple. That is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Now, the first three chapters of Acts, it's going to form this thing that's like a triad. And it's all about the Holy Spirit coming and his empowerment and what he's going to do. uh, Make us witnesses for the name of Jesus. So the first chapter of Acts is all about waiting for the Spirit. The second chapter of Acts, the Spirit shows up. And the third chapter of Acts, you'll see them start to be living this out, being empowered to be these witnesses, and one of those things is this healing. Verse 3, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. Now, this is standard begging. In this culture, if you were lame from birth, that's your job. You could, Your profession is literally to go out and just ask people to help you out. And this is very important. We talked about this last week because there's two reasons he'd be outside the temple. Number one is that God's people were meant to be generous, and so they'd be there. Can you help? Sure, yes. You know, There's not really a lot of social welfare programs, and so people People would go by and they would help other people. But the other thing is why he's outside the temple is the religious leaders wouldn't let someone who was crippled inside the temple because they saw them as being cursed by God. So they had to actually sit outside. Verse 4, And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. So Peter here starts to kind of size this guy up. And I used to wonder about this because nobody really deals with this. Peter looks at him. Why does Peter look at him? Look at him. I think Peter looks at him because he's trying to figure out what's going on in this guy's life. And I want to spend a few minutes talking about that. So I want you guys to open your Bibles at John 5. Stay, you know, keep your place in Acts 3, but flip over to John chapter 5. I might be out to lunch, but I want to explain what I think is kind of happening here. When Jesus does his public ministry, he heals some people. And every once in a while, he heals people and they try and stab him in the back. Not good. Don't stab Jesus in the back, okay? And so in John chapter 5, there's this really interesting thing that happens. John chapter 5, verse 2. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of individuals, blind, lame, and paralyzed. First off, this is going to be a very unpolitically correct message. I'm going to apologize right up front, okay? Just Throwing it out there. So what you have here is you have this covered place. There's a pool in the middle. It's very nice, but it's full of all of these heap of people who cannot take themselves to the bathroom. So it's a very stinky place. You probably don't want to walk through it unless there's a good breeze going. It's not that great. Hundreds of people, they're crippled. They can't move, and they all want healing from God. Now, most of your Bibles are going to skip verse 4, but I'm going to read it. It says, And they waited for the moving of the waters. From time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. The first one into the pool after such disturbance would be cured of whatever disease he had. Now, verse 4, most of your Bibles will have a little note that says this is not found in the earliest manuscripts. It means it's probably not written by John. A scribe probably is reading through what's happening, and he says people aren't going to understand this. So he makes a little note in the margin. At some point, someplace, somebody took that and they inserted it into the text. One of the reasons you can trust that the Bible you have is as accurate as possible is not that it's been translated and translated and translated. We go back to the earliest manuscripts we have. And any time we find something like this, it's set out to the side so you can trust it. This is not in the earliest manuscript. So you trust exactly what you have. Your translation is like right out of the Greek. You got it. It's like one to you. It's not been translated many times. You can trust what you have in your hands. And so there's some scholar probably reading through this thing, and there's this legend that arose, and so he writes it in so you know what people were thinking of and why they're there. Every once in a while, the waters get stirred. People thought, oh, you're going to get healed. It's a legend. But Imagine the waters actually stir. You've got a hundred 
hundreds of people probably in this place, and the first one in the water is the only one who gets healed. What do the rest do? They have a major problem, okay? You've got blind and paralyzed, and they're all in the pool, okay? No lifeguard on... I, I know it's not for the career, okay? But there's no lifeguard on duty, and then, you know, first guy's happy, right? Yay! Everybody else? Problem, okay? Just, just problem right there. I mean, you're thinking, at least they get a bath, but, I mean, seriously. Now, but think about it. If this works, if this works, if you're blind, you see. If you're lame, you walk. If you're crippled, you're healed. Huge opportunity. If we had this somewhere in the world, everybody would be there. Everyone. So this is where you meet our guy. Verse 5. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Most people didn't live 38 years. This guy's been crippled for 38 years. We don't know how long he has been at the pool. He's probably been there a while. It says, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? Seems like an odd question. The guy's at the pool. He probably, you know, of course, well, he wants to be. Why does Jesus ask this question? And I've got a speculation. Do you think everybody at the pool really wanted to get healed? Let me ask it to you in our vernacular today. Do you think that every homeless person that holds up a sign that says, we'll work for food, really wants to work for food? No, no. No, this is actually a lot like churches, though. Do you think everybody who comes into a church service really wants to worship God and walk in Christ's ways? Probably, probably not. I mean, I think, what are you here for? You know, some of you are here because, hey, if you're nice enough, maybe you'll get a handout. Or maybe your wife or husband drug you down here in some way. Maybe you're just religious and it's just what you do. Maybe uh, you're a single chick and you're looking for a dude. Or maybe you do look for a single chick. Good luck with that, okay? You know, whatever. A lot of people go to Bethesda for various reasons. And think about this again. I'm not being politically correct, but are there benefits if you're crippled in society? Of course there are. Uh, money. You get soft-hearted, big-walled people. There are certain people in society who get labeled as a victim, and when you do, you get benefits. You get help and friendship and opportunity. It's why, in our culture, everyone wants to be labeled as a victim. This guy probably gets food and money from people. He also gets people to commiserate with him. Because when you're in a, in a state like this, people never feel like they have the right to tell you to stop whining. He says, and so you just get there, oh, everything's so horrible, everything's so bad, what, what am I going to, it's like a bad small group, no one wants to get better, everybody just wants to complain all the time, it's like, and you all get together, oh, this is terrible, and nobody, it's, seriously, I got the hemorrhoids, the hair is falling out of my head and growing out of my ears, my job sucks, my car doesn't work, blah, blah, blah. When people don't want to get better, they love to complain. They love to whine. This place is probably really loud with all these people playing the, I got more bed sores than that guy over there, so you give me your money instead. I'm worse off. Now, some people are legitimate victims, okay? Don't think I'm not saying that. I don't want you to have heart hearts. I, I want you guys to have mercy and compassion. But you'll see Jesus comes in and he talks to this one guy. He doesn't deal with everyone, this one guy. And he says, do you want to get well? Because if that's true, then his entire life is going to have to change. He's going to have to get up and get a job. He's no longer supposed to be able to beg. This is just like you and I. Do you want to get better? Do you really want Jesus to change your life? Do you want things to actually seriously change? Because the essence of humanity is that we want things to change. But we don't really want to change. It's like if if your marriage is horrible, you're like, I want that person to change. Well, you probably need to change. You're just like this guy. Do you really want... I was talking to a guy about a year ago about this, and he'd been married five times. And he was telling me how he keeps marrying the wrong women. And I'm like, you're the wrong dude. 
I mean, you get five in there, you're the wrong guy. Okay, that, that's, that's just how it works. I, you keep doing the same thing, expecting a different result. It's not going to happen. The question, do you want to change? Do we want to change? Of course this guy wants things to change, but does he want to change? I think this is one of the reasons why Peter looks intently at the guy outside of the temple in Acts 3. I mean, seriously, if, if someone is always whining at you, ask him the question, do you want to get better? I mean, the people that you duck from at work, or maybe in your family, or maybe at church, <laughs> you know, you think, well, you go, how's it going? And you've heard the answer a thousand times. Yeah, yeah, your husband's a jerk. He leaves the lid up, drinks out of the carton. You go, yeah, it's horrible. He smells bad, whatever. It's like, yeah, I know you had a terrible week. You always have a terrible week. You know, is there really anything else with that? Do you want things to change? This is why I say constantly to you, I am not a good counselor. Okay? I'm not. I got a negative Yelp review about being a counselor. (laughs) You can read it. And I tell you all the time, because people talk to me for long enough, and all I hear is Charlie Brown's parents. I'm like, walk, 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 walk. I'm like, that's, that's just what it is. You know, people are like, I lie, I drink too much, and watch things I shouldn't, I'm messing up my whole life. I'm like, do you want to change? Yes. No, you don't. You want everything else to change, but you don't want to change. We see our issues as being more important than actually changing. I mean, why do we even gather together like this? Oh, I like the band, or you're sarcastic and funny, whatever it is. I love Jesus' question in here. Do you want to change? Verse 7, the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred, and while I'm going down, another steps in front of me. Did he answer the question? No! What does he do? He whines. He whines. Sir, I have no one to go in the pool when the water is stirred, and I'm going to such a it. Every day. 38 years. Help me, help me. I mean, seriously. If I came to you and I said, you want $100,000, you know what you should say? Yes. Or no. But, you know, you're right. But you don't say, oh, I once had $100, and my brother bought a house for $200,000. You say yes or no. That's what you say. This guy, like, drives you nuts. I know you're thinking, I married that person, right? But (laughs) Jesus walks up, and he says, do you want to get better? And this guy only thinks about his commiseration and sympathy. Verse 8, Jesus said, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And I love the guy's like, what Jesus said, stop it, get up, pick up your bed, go home. Everybody at the pool is like, thank you, Jesus, (laughs) for healing that guy. He's just like, he's like, get over it, get up. The mat's been carrying you. You're going to carry that mat. It's like the Apostle Paul says, Philippians 3, 13, and 14. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straying towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. You stop staring at your past. Your past becomes the thing that's in your past. You look in front of you. You go forward where God is calling you to be. You go forward. Christ's authority is wonderful and how it heals us, not just physically, but emotionally and spiritually and calls us to who we're supposed to be. Verse 9, and at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. And this is the Bible, so you know someone's going to get mad about this, right? Now that day was the Sabbath. Like, uh uh-oh, there it is, right? So the Jews are going to get mad about this. This guy's walking around carrying his bed. We don't know where he goes, but somebody sees him and they're like, you can't carry your bed. That's, That's not a rule in the Bible. That's a stupid human rule that somebody made up. Uh, just like they, the, the Jews would say you couldn't put a needle in your pocket on the Sabbath because it might go through your clothing and you might sew something. That would be work, so that, that's a sin, whatever. This guy gets healed. Someone's got to be in trouble. He gets pointed out, and he's going to make sure the person who gets in trouble is not him. Okay? So he, says, the, so he says this, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. you got to love it. I was healed against my will. I'm a victim. Right? 
That's, that's his answer. I'm just sitting there. You know me. I'm the guy that winds in the back of the pool area. All the, You know me. And this guy came in, and he was so overbearing and rude and said, get up and take your mat. And well, I just had to get up. I don't, I don't know. Verse 12, they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? And the man who had been healed did not know who it was. Great guy, right? Didn't even ask. Didn't even ask. This is people all over our world today. For Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. So the guy didn't ask. Jesus slips away. Sad. Put back over to Acts chapter 3. Okay? Now, I think Peter comes in. And he sees this guy sitting there, and, he, and he's kind of sizing him up, making sure he doesn't have an arm shoved down his shirt, you know, so he's like, oh, I'm one arm guy, you know, that, that kind of thing. I think he, think he sizes him up, but you also see that just because Peter saw Jesus get burned, it doesn't turn him off to compassion, to seriously looking at the person who was in front of him. Peter doesn't write this guy off. You'll see later the guy in John chapter 5. He is in his predicament of 38 years because of something that he did in his life that led him to that. In the book of Acts, it tells you this guy was in the condition he was from birth. So you see the difference. The Gospel Transformation Bible says this. The power of God's salvation not only creates generosity, but also drives concern for the weak and the afflicted, as seen in Peter and John's interaction with this beggar. The guy is not just a statistic. Because of all that he saw happen to Jesus, it still didn't jade him to the fact of looking seriously at somebody to see what they actually needed and to step into his life. Acts 3, verse 4. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold. So he's not a prosperity teacher. They're poor. But what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. What it tells you is there is no money that could purchase this healing. There is nothing you could do to try and steal God's grace from him, because God's grace is given to you. The transforming power of God's grace and love is laid into this man's body and his heart. Peter and John are just conduits through where God's Spirit is flowing and doing these amazing things. Verse 7, And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong, and leaping up, now the guy's never stood, but now he's leaping up. The words leaping up relates to that word for joy in the Greek text. This is fulfillment of God's prophecy. Isaiah 35, verse 6, Then shall the lame man leap up like a deer. So leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with him. Where does this guy go? Into the temple. He goes to church. What does he do? He's going to go worship God. He doesn't go home and start carrying his mat somewhere else. He actually goes to the temple to worship God. He actually wanted his life to change. He celebrates God's goodness. So it says, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to them. What you see is that the healing is not the point. The glory of God is the goal. That's what happens here. And all the people around see what happened. They worship God because of this miracle. Now, sometimes throughout the scriptures, you will see God heal people instantaneously. And a lot of times you will see God allow the bodies to take their natural course. Uh, every week I almost have band-aids. None today, right? I, I healed, right? Um, <laughs> but like two weeks ago, I had band-aids over my fingers because I was working in the yard and cut them all up again like happens to me. But this, I mean, that's a beautiful miracle of the grace of God. That our bodies are designed to heal themselves as they go forward. And God does, does both of those things. And what I want to do is I'm going to quickly cover some things of why there's sickness in the world, bring this together with the compassion to God and what we talked about. And I'll bring it all together, but just trust me. So first off, let me talk about this. Why is there sickness in the world today? Why do we need healing? First off is that we live in a fallen world. 
Okay, we live in a fallen world. When God made the world, he called it good. Everything was alive in peace and right relationship with God. Uh, it was beautiful. God places man into this creation and what man is supposed to do, but responsibility and stewardship over it. But man rebels against God and sins against him. Romans chapter 5 verse 12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. Why is there death? Adam's sin and our own sin. We're the cause. We choose over and over our own sin over God's life, and we mess everything up. There is not always a direct correlation between a problem we have and some sin. It just could be the result of a fallen world. Um, we need to go back to the beginning where it starts, the fallen world. The second thing, though, is personal sin. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul talks about some sin the Corinthians are involved in in that church while taking communion. He says, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 30, That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Sometimes there's a direct causal result from sin to sickness. You get drunk, and you're like, Woo, I can jump off that. I can swim in that. I can get in a fight. I'm going to drive my car. And you get like a DUI or wrapping around a tree or whatever. Something bad happens, and you suffer because of the direct result of your actions. Cause and effect. Personal sin, something happens. You eat cookies all day, you get the diabetes. Right? That's what happens. Jesus, Jesus says, man should not eat my bread alone, so I'll eat everything. Right? And then you have leads to poor hell. I mean, maybe, maybe you think, well, I work out and I'm really in shape. But some people, you know, steroids destroys your liver faster than booze. Uh, you know, maybe you never rest. And God says you need to learn how to rest and then you get sick. Again, John 5, Jesus finds this guy sometimes later and he says, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The guy was in the predicament he was because of his sin. He sinned, he sinned again. Jesus walks up and he says, knock it off. Knock it off. If you sin, there are consequences. And we say, oh, that's so sad. Maybe not. That, it could be God's discipline in your life. Sin equals con. I, our world doesn't believe this. It doesn't believe that. We think we deserve good all the time. Sometimes God's discipline is the good. In God's economy, sin can lead to pain and turmoil and physical disability, all kinds of stuff. Like if, if you drink too much, you will blow out your liver and maybe you wreck your car. Drugs will blow your mind. Sin always leads to death. It robs you of life and will ultimately rob you of health and will eventually lead to your death. Sin it will not stop until it kills you or you kill it. Sin always leads to death. In 1 Corinthians, uh, they're spitting in the face of Jesus saying, Hey, you died for my sin. I can do whatever I want. You have to forgive me. So there. Sometimes we need to repent of our sin in order for sickness to go away. And the third thing in the scriptures it talks about is spiritual forces. In the scriptures, it takes very seriously the fact there are forces in our world that are spiritual, and not all of them are good. I know in our politically correct day, we're always like, oh, they're so spiritual, or that's so spiritual. We just need to be more spiritual. Some spiritual forces are bad. And I mean, I'll tell you, this is hard for us in our enlightened, rational world we live in today to kind of believe that. But you see Jesus coming in and casting out demons that made people sick. This isn't head spinning around and green goo flying out and, and like holy water and incantations. That's not what it is. It's the authority of Jesus. Just like in Acts chapter 3, when this guy gets healed, it says, In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. I mean, if you want to pray biblically for people, you should pray against the enemy and his servants and their works. I mean, it's, it's really important to understand this, though, because a lot of teachers will point out to you that God heals in different ways. God will heal miraculously, and God will heal over time, and God sometimes says, no. Is, is miraculous healing meant to replace traditional medicine? The answer is no. God gave doctors the minds they did to come up with the things that they do. Some people say yes, and it leads to extreme cases in people's lives where people get really hurt and there's a lot of suffering. What we believe in is natural medicine and supernatural prayer hand-in-hand hand going together. 
Acts is written by a guy named Luke, okay? Luke is a doctor, not some crazy backwater, poke a doll with a, with a pin kind of doctor, but, but a real doctor. My wife is a nurse. I am glad she's a nurse because I hurt myself a lot. I, I, I pray more of you become nurses and doctors because the older I get, the more help I am going to need. Just throwing it out there, right? Luke is educated, he is intelligent, and he wrote what he saw. The healings and acts were real, but God doesn't always heal that way. The Apostle Paul himself has something he calls a thorn in his flesh. This is some sickness or disability that God refused to take away. You'll see him pray for other people. Other people will get healed, but God never healed him of this. Why? Because God had a purpose behind it. And so what this tells you is we pray for all these things. And if Jesus heals you, great. You worship and follow Jesus. If he doesn't heal you, you worship and you follow Jesus. If he heals you over time, great. You worship and follow Jesus. If you go to a doctor and a doctor heals you, great. You worship and follow Jesus. God can use miracles and nutrition, your doctor surgery, maybe even some homeopathic stuff where you go gluten-free, you weirdos, you know, whatever. Juice plus, you know, you can, you can use it all. God can use all these things because God made them all, so you use it all. Our problem tends to be, which you'll see later in the book of Acts, is that when, when healings happen, we tend to focus on the person or the prayer or the teacher, and we turn that person into a rock star. That person starts to think of themselves as a rock star. How does the healing affect the people in the book of Acts? It says they were all filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened. They go in and they start worshiping and praising God for what God actually did. And that is how we should live. We praise God in all circumstances, whether we're healed miraculously or not, or whether we're healed at all. We are still meant to praise God in all of our circumstances. And I think a really good question for us to ask ourselves in looking through this is, do we really want to get better? Do we really want to get better? Do we really want our lives to change? Or do we only expect God to come in and change our circumstances and not us? Because when Jesus redeems us, he redeems all of us. And that means all of us begin to change. Everything inside and outside. Are we more like the guy in John chapter 5 or like the guy in Acts chapter 3? Is our heart first drawn to Jesus or is our heart first drawn to ourselves, what we think we need? Because you have to understand that we are a people who are addicted to ourselves. And Jesus has come to set us free from the addiction to self. That is the first healing that every single one of us needs. This is when we talk about communion. This is the idea that Jesus, when he died, that's why you break that cracker like his body was broken for us. Breaks the chains of our lives, of our sins. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. Reminds of his blood that was shed for you and me. Why? So that our chains to our own self-centered addiction could be broken and he could begin to heal us and restore us and renew us and make us into who he calls us to be. When you read this stuff like this in the scriptures, our natural response is to be like, yeah, not everybody with the sign that says work for work for food. Oh, those jerks. Our hearts need to be more drawn to be like people like Peter who looks intently to see the need. What is the actual need there? Many times the need is not to go and, and give them something, but it is to be people who can live and show the truth and the grace of the gospel in all these people's lives. We must be who God calls us to be. But you've got to understand that's, that first starts here and what he's done in here and works its way out into everybody we come into contact with. And that's why the operative question is, do you really want to change? Do you really want to live the life that God calls you to live? Because that is not the standard message of American Christianity. The standard of American Christianity, rational Christianity, is God's there to bless you and give you everything that you want. And that is not true. 
God is there to make you holy. God is going to make you more like his son. And sometimes that is kicking and screaming. That he moves you into who he calls you to be because he is the one who does the change. The question is, do we really want to change? Do we really want to be the people that he is calling us to be? Because it's not, it's not easy. But I think when we lean into that and trust him for that, we'll be more like the guy in Acts chapter 3 than the guy in John chapter 5. And then we'll begin to live that out in our lives and begin to show that to everybody we come into contact with because God's compassion is bigger and greater than us. And what his healing does in our lives, it actually begins to reset us into who he truly calls us to be. The band's going to come up. As they do, we invite you guys, as I said, to take communion, to remember that he died to take away and break your chains of sin that held you to your self-addiction, to heal you in that regard. Um, there's going to be some deacons and elders in the back, and if you guys need prayer, they would love to pray with you. I mean, maybe you've got something going on in your life. Maybe you do have a physical ailment that you want them to pray for. They would, they would love to pray for you. Maybe there's something emotionally going on, or you feel like something spiritually is going on. They'd love to pray with you about that as well. They would love to, to sit down and pray with you about these things, and we would pray for God's healing in a multitude of different ways. Now, there's offering boxes inside of all in the back, and we give because God gave so much to us, giving them as part of our worship. We don't pass the plate. It's a response to what he's done. Uh, there's some food in the back. We invite you to grab something to eat, maybe meet some other people, take some of the sermon notes, talk about the family stuff, but also go a little bit deeper into what we talk about. See if you have somebody in your life that you are close enough to and where they could say, do you really want to get better? Maybe you could pinpoint something in your life where you say you do, but you really don't. And maybe they could come in and start to begin to walk through that with you. So you maybe actually do want to get better in every area of your life, that you really want Jesus to heal all of those places, to grow us into who he intends for us to be, so he doesn't drag us there kicking and screaming, because I think he will do that too. But I also think in other ways, it's so much better when we just say, yeah, Jesus, I do want to get better. I don't understand how, I don't understand what it's going to look like, but I do. So lead me where you want me to be. And it's a beautiful thing. Guys, we, we serve a God who comes in and heals in a myriad of ways. And when we think healing, we only think physical. I think, I think you'll see various stories throughout the scripture where Jesus first comes in and heals spiritually. You know, there's this guy who's been a paralytic for years, and the first thing Jesus says to him is, your sins are forgiven. He doesn't even go to the ailment that we would think is so big. He goes to the core issue. What holds us down in our sin? Jesus comes and he heals us. And he grows us. And cause us to be a people who praise him in all circumstances and all things. Because God's compassion is bigger than us. And it's bigger than our understanding of compassion. And so today we need to be people who say, yeah, I really want God to change me. And I really want God to heal me. And I really do want to be better. And that's the place where I think they spend a little bit of time with. Because, you know, sometimes, you know, all of us feel like, you know, there's a place in our souls and our lives that's just not going to be healed. But I'll tell you, God is working in all of us in his way and his timing because he is good. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us to be a people who trust you in all of our circumstances. God's for those in this room who have something physical going on in their life and in their body or with someone that they love. We ask that your grace and compassion would fill into those open spaces. And you would bring healing in the way that you see fit, whether it's physical or whether it's emotional or whether it's just growing them into the people they can be for one another to hold one another up before you 
Father, as for those in this room who need some emotional healing, I ask that you would step into that and your, your spirit as the great physician. We continue to grow us into who we're meant to be. And for those in this room who need deep, deep spiritual healing, I ask that you would come, that you would renew life, that you would help us to understand redemption and the full understanding of it. And that you would change all of us from the core of who we are outward and that we would begin to live and be your hands and feet in this world. That we would be a people who are completely lost in who you are. And that we would show the goodness of your grace and your mercy and how you have sought to redeem us all. Thank you for saving and thank you for healing. Grow us in the people you intend for us to be. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.